0: So I want you to to look with me at several different places this morning as we look at Peter's life and try to answer the question, what did the Lord God reveal to Peter through all of these different events and experiences that he allowed Peter to have? I can easily relate to Peter. Peter was a fisherman. That's where we first find him in the scriptures. He's in the boat mending his nets. Acts chapter 4 tells us that he was an, an ordinary, uneducated man. And his life's work was graciously interrupted by the call of Christ and changed his life forever. It's right for us to say that Peter was never the same after Christ called him to himself. So when you think about Peter, there is so much in the New Testament about him. He is one of the central figures of the New Testament. Only Paul gets more attention. In the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, through his writings, the epistles, Paul is the preeminent apostle, but Peter is very close. I realize there's no competition there between them. They were both used of God, called of God, accomplished the purposes that God called them to. But among all the things that we could turn to, to look at the life of Peter, I want to look at four things. Two out of Matthew, one out of Luke. One out of the book of Acts. And those four things are Peter's great confession. Peter is the one that said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter was one of the three who was with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration and heard the voice thunder out of heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter denied Jesus given great opportunity to stand up and say, yes, you're exactly right, I'm with him. He denied him. If he had not denied him, he would have never been so wonderfully restored. And then Peter is the one in Acts chapter 2 that stands up on the day of Pentecost filled with the Spirit, preaches a magnificent sermon based on the Old Testament Scriptures, and over 3,000 people were converted. And so as we begin to study him and see how he grew and matured in the Lord, let me remind you that it is Peter that wrote to us in 2 Peter chapter three eighteen, this verse which says, that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things to remind you of before we go any further, growth in the knowledge of God is an expectation of Scripture that is placed upon you and upon me. Growth in the knowledge of God is expected and it is a reflection of true spiritual life and spiritual health. If you are spiritually healthy, you are spiritually growing. To grow in the grace of the the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to grow in the knowledge of God. And when... Peter uses this word knowledge in 3.18 of his second letter. I like this this commentary on this verse. It's found in the Reformation Study Bible on the word knowledge. And the note is, This knowledge is the ever-deepening experience of Christ and understanding of his truth that should characterize the entire course of the believer's life. Now let me ask you a question. Does this define you? Does this define who you are? Do you have an ever-deepening experience slash understanding of who Jesus is and of the truth that he has made known about himself? If you're a healthy, growing Christian, it defines you well. If you've lost your first love and, be, and grown cold, then it's probably not such a great description. But there's hope, there's forgiveness, the opportunity to repent presents itself and to return and do the first works. This ever deepening experience seems to be one of the main emphases of Peter's entire second epistle. You remember how he starts? He starts by saying, give all diligence to what? To your life's work? We should be diligent in our life's work. We should give to the Lord the glory due his name by the things we put our hands to. But that's not what Peter says. He says, be diligent to add to your faith. What does he mean by that? Add to your faith virtue to virtue add knowledge, to knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and he goes on down through the list and he says finally in verse 8, if these things are yours and abound, and don't miss those two words, it's not just the possession of these things, it's the abounding nature of these things that makes us fruitful Christians. We can possess a lot of knowledge of God that is right, that is true, that is doctrinally precise, and be the least productive Christian there is. It's not just the possessing of these things, it's the abounding nature of these things. Listen to the verse again. This is 2 Peter 3.8. If these things are yours and abound, then you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can apply some logic to this verse. And the logic would be this. If you honestly assess your life before the Lord and you find that what you are currently in possession of as you live the Christian life is barren and unfruitful, it doesn't necessarily mean that you lack knowledge. It means that you're not abounding in it, that you're not adding to it, that you're not being diligent to pursue more, that you're not growing in grace and the knowledge of God. As Peter writes these things, it seems to be that he is writing as he reflects on his own experience, as he reflects on all of the situations, circumstances, and events that he would have with Christ as he walked with him as a disciple on this earth. And so it's not wrong for us to say, though it may sound a little funny, that Peter is writing under his own influence, under the influence of his own experience. Just think in your own mind quickly of all the scripture tells us about him. We first meet him as a fisherman. He was called to be a disciple. He was an eyewitness to the miracles and to the teaching and the preaching of Jesus. And then he was particularly called to be with Christ along with James and John. Various other times in the ministry of Jesus and to see Even more astounding things. One of those we'll look at this morning being the transfiguration of Jesus. But being privileged to so much, remember that even as he mouthed his zealous words, that he would go and die with Christ if necessary. That just a short time later, he would deny that he ever even knew Jesus. And then toward the end, he would be the mighty preacher, he would be the writer of these two epistles that we study to our great prophet, and then church history tells us that Peter would finally die a martyr's death, dying, crucified, like his Lord, but yet upside down. This type of growth and fruitful use of knowledge is that to which every healthy believer should aspire to and it is part of what peter said makes our calling and election sure how many of you want to live your life doubting whether or not you're truly christian and that's a real struggle for some it's what we call the assurance of faith Your primary assurance, hear me, your primary assurance comes from the fact that you've been united to Christ by faith. And that's enough. But the circumstances of life, the lies of the devil, the fiery darts begin to speak and to tell you things and things like this. If you are a Christian, you wouldn't have done that. Or if you were truly a Christian, you would not have said that. And so when Peter says, make your calling and election sure, what he's, what he's built up to, to that point is to be diligent. Add to your faith these things through the diligent use of the means God has given you, reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with the saints, observing the ordinances, doing all of these things. Be diligent to use those things for your own spiritual growth so that when you hear the voice of the adversary telling you, if you are, then you wouldn't, then what you have ready and armed is spiritual growth, and it makes your calling and election sure. And you could reply if you so choose, I suppose. I'm not where I was yesterday. I've made a little bit more progress. Granted, sometimes it's one step forward and five, six, or ten backwards, but progress is progress nonetheless. I want to, I want to be cautious here for just a minute with you and, and make sure that the intention is clear. My, my goal is not to remind you of everything about Peter and then at the end say, now go live like Peter. Peter. He did such a great job. If you just be like Peter, everything will be well. That is not my goal at all. Rather, my goal here is to exhort you, to encourage you, to be diligent, to grow in grace, to grow in knowledge, to truly know the Lord Jesus Christ and to bring him honor and glory in and through that knowledge, abound in it and bear fruit. Then you won't be barren You'll be a fruitful Christian, and when the adversary speaks in your ear, there's, there's fruit there to combat those lies. Peter ends his epistle by saying, to him, to God, be both glory, now and forever. Amen. That was the goal of his life. And in studying the book of Judges recently, this name has come up often. Dr. Davis, he says, and he reminds us, concerning the figures and characters of the Scripture, that the Bible never presents them to us as an end in themselves. And all he's saying is, don't study Paul, Peter, Gideon, whomever it may be, and then have the, the summary be, I just need to be like them. But rather what he says here is the scriptures are depicting to us the salvation of God in and through their lives. The grace that he worked in them. See that. See them as men and women who fail and fail often. But see the saving work and grace of God in them that continually takes them by the hand, picks them back up. Because he will do the same to you, for you. And for me. Now the Proverbs tell us the fear of man brings a snare, but it's equally true that the exaltation of man into a wrong place is dangerous ground to tread on as well. We want to give Peter his due. We want to see him for who he is. The writer of Hebrews, obviously, in the 11th chapter of the Faith Hall of Fame, lists names of people who lived exemplary lives a faith that is not wrong for us to do, but we need to keep it in check. We need to see that the faith that they were being exemplified for was a faith given them, a faith strengthened in them, a faith that was diligently pursued by them. And as we think about this knowledge of God that can be made known to us, I want to remind you, remember last week we began to look at Samson in Judges 13. His father Manoah responds to the angel of the Lord that had just announced Samson's birth to his wife, Samson's unnamed mother. And Manoah goes and asks a question and he asks him, what is your name? And what was the response? The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, most likely says to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. The word there means incomprehensible. Even if I were to tell you my name, you would not be able to fathom it. Not just because of the name itself, but because of what the name represents. The character that is behind the name. For example, we we know God has revealed himself in scripture as Jehovah Jireh. Or the God who provides. That's his name, but it's also a representation and a revelation of his character. And so the angel there responds to Manoah and says, If I were to tell you all of my name, you would not be able to withstand it. And so we're reminded here of one other quotation. There is a mystery, a depth, a surpassingness about God that we can never fathom, comprehend, or touch. That's why Paul would say in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So we make this summary conclusion that part of knowing God is to realize that there is so much more of him that we will never, ever know. Would you really want a God that you could understand everything about Would you really want a God that is parallel to you, not transcendent and high above you? Sadly, tragically, millions if not billions of people in the world serve and worship a God of their own making. That they have created very often in their own image. Some going so far as even to carve this image out of wood and set it up somewhere in their house so they can... Worship and bow down to it. The saddest tragedy of all are those who profess to be Christian. But yet, if you press them to describe the God whom they serve, the God they describe looks very little, if anything at all, like the God of the Bible. That's why it's so vital That we raise our children and encourage one another in the true things of God. And to construct in our own minds and have the Lord reveal in our own minds what he is really like. It's not enough for us to wish and hope and suppose that God is this way or that way. Because when we do that, all we do is construct him in our image hoping that he is somewhat like us when the scriptures say he is altogether different. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We can't understand and fathom everything he does, but we have this great tempering, balancing revelation of God that tells us whatever he does with you, he's doing for your good. He's working it all together for good. Even the hurt, the pain... The sorrow, the tears, the joy, all of these things, he is mixing together, ultimately, finally, for your own good. But don't mistake, though we strive after growth and grace and knowledge, just know beforehand, and thank God for it, we'll never figure him out. You cannot put God in a box You cannot make him act in every situation like you want him to act or hope he would act or think he would act. Sometimes the way he acts defies human logic, sometimes the way he acts makes perfect sense. We take them both as coming to us from the good hand of God. So, back to Peter, one of the preeminent disciples of the Lord particularly called to be the apostle to the Jews. On many occasions when we read the scriptures, we saw this just this morning as we studied the miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth. Those who were collecting the temple tax presented their question to Peter. Why? Because they knew he would speak. They knew he would say something. They knew that he was on very many occasions the spokesman for the disciples Yet he was not without flaws, he was not without sin, he stood in need of correction at times. You remember Paul called him out for his actions, and he was sternly rebuked by the Lord in one occasion, which we'll see this morning. Peter saw miraculous things over and over and over again in his life. But we're going to narrow down to four things. And I want you first to look with me at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. This is where Peter confesses Jesus given the opportunity. And the premise before all of these four points is this. To know God, you must be taught of God. To know him, he must reveal himself to you. My testimony would be very shortly, as many of yours. I was not looking for the Lord when he found me. But he found me. He went in search of the wandering sheep, pulled me out of the ditch, placed my feet up on a rock. That's many of your testimonies as well. So in Matthew 16, verse 13, Peter's great confession of faith, and it is glorious. Verse 13, Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? If you skip down just a few verses, verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and raised again on the third day. Jesus' particular concern here was not the misconception. The misconception of the unbelieving masses concerning who he was. Rather, his particular concern was that those that he had called to himself would know exactly who he was. So that when he went to Jerusalem, suffered and died and was killed and raised, that they could look back upon this conversation and be strengthened and encouraged and filled with faith. And notice how Peter answers the question. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, "Simon, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Truer words could not have been spoken by Peter. This was the best thing that Peter knew. And it had been revealed to him by God. Jesus replies and says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He uses his whole name from his former days. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Note, not even your own flesh and blood, Peter. Not your own intellect. Not your own wisdom. Your your flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. One of the things that God is teaching Peter, and Christ is teaching Peter here about himself, is that he is a God of great condescension. What does that mean? It means that though he is highly exalted, transcendent, Living high in the heavens, Psalm 115, verse 3, telling us that he is doing there whatever he pleases. He is bound by no one, he has no obligations. But yet in condescending grace, making himself low, he comes and reveals himself to sinful men and to sinful women. And if you sit here this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ, you should glory in this fact that God has so greatly condescended to come down into your life, into your heart, into your mind, to the depth of your soul, and show you who He is. Otherwise, you would not know Him. Your eyes would still be closed, your heart would still be stone, your ears would still be deaf. But in grace, he has come, and just like this great revelation of himself is made to Peter, he has made that revelation to you. So, another word of caution. Be careful of speaking about what you, quote, discover about God. If you've discovered it, if I've discovered it, it's probably wrong. Could even be heretical. Outside of the general observation of God in nature, which reveals his power, his wisdom, his omnipotence. Everything else that we know about him is a product of his condescending grace in making himself known in the scriptures. So you can boil it all down to this. All that you know about God has graciously been taught you. Be humbled by that. And I'll speak for Peter here, but I think you can put these words in your own own heart and mind as you think of yourself. Peter might at some point in time in his life said, I was just a poor, uneducated fisherman. And yet now I know all this about my creator. He wasn't taught it by man. He didn't teach himself. The Lord God revealed it to him. So that's Peter's great confession. The Lord making known to him that he is a God of condescending grace, making himself known. The second thing very closely related to this, in fact, a a chronology of Peter's life, it moves right from this great confession to one of the lowest points of his life. Not as low as his denying Christ, but really close. If you were to graph Peter's life and graph out his highs and his lows, there's not a greater, more stark fall than what we find in Matthew 16. He goes from confessing Jesus, the Christ, the Son, of the living God, to hearing these words come out of Jesus' mouth directed to him in verse 23 when Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why did Jesus say that to him? Why did Jesus so sternly rebuke him? Why would Jesus say to him, you are an offense to me? Did he not just say you're the Christ, the Son of the living God? Jesus says, Yes, absolutely, God the Father revealed this to you, but so quickly now he hears the words of Jesus, you are an offense to me, you are only minding the things of men, not the things of God. What had he done? Well, after Jesus had told him, I am going to Jerusalem to be killed and to suffer and to be raised on the third day, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus for making this known to him. And he says to him, far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you're speaking more like the devil, Satan himself, than my disciple who just made this great revelation. That takes us right into the Mount of Transfiguration which is the second point that I want to cover with you. We usually would come to this and and see what Peter learned about Jesus and his glory being revealed, his clothing becoming white and bright as light. But I want to look at it from a little different angle and ask, what did God the Father reveal to Peter when he spoke from heaven and allowed Peter to hear it and understand him? Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. What does that mean, that he was transfigured? Well, the scripture tells us, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. This was the glory that he had eternity, in eternity past, shared with his father for a moment in time, being placed back upon him. And Peter was privileged to see it. He saw Moses and Elijah appear there, and they talked with Jesus. And Peter begins to speak out of place, out of turn again. Why do I say that? Because Luke tells us in his gospel that Peter was only speaking at this point because he didn't know what else to do. He didn't know what to say, so he just began to speak And notice in verse 5, while he was still speaking, God interrupted him. We could say here that God was not the perfect gentleman, was he? He didn't wait till Peter finished. He cut him off abruptly. And he stopped him dead in his tracks. He didn't allow his foolish speech to go on. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud. The first thing that God is revealing to Peter here on this Mount of Transfiguration is that he is absolutely altogether glorious. Brightness everywhere. Jesus is bright. His clothes are white. The cloud descending. The brightness of his glory Everything here shining brightly as a representation. Think Old Testament Shekinah glory, the light that, that could not be born. Peter calls this later in his own life, the excellent glory. Notice what a lasting impression this made upon Peter. Later in life, as an older disciple, now apostle, he recounts what happened. Here In first, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, Jesus received from God the Father honor and glory when the, when the voice came to him from excellent glory, which said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice when it came to him from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Stuck with him his whole life. Isn't that the way it is with us? Some of the things God teaches us seem to simmer in our hearts all of our lives. They seem to just marinate there. And the longer they're there and the longer they're simmering in our soul, the more precious they become as time goes on. This is Peter as an old apostle drawing near the end. And he's talking about what he heard on the mountain with Jesus. What God had made known to him there was not lost upon him. God is revealing to him here his good pleasure in his own son. Notice what the voice from the the cloud said. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him it would be right and true of us to think of God as being eternally happy and joyful because he is. Nothing disrupts that. Nothing intervenes in that. And that is because nothing ever takes him by surprise. Nothing ever dawns on God because he knows it all beginning from end. He is totally unfazed by his creation and the affairs of it, even as he sovereignly and providentially superintends and rules over it. So it's not wrong to think of God as being eternally joyful and happy. And what Joel Beakey refers to as God's beatitude, God's eternal happiness but that's not really the point of what he's making known to peter here what he is making known is that his happiness and his good pleasure resides in the in his own contemplation of the glory of his son let me ask you a question if the perfectly all glorious and holy creating god in heaven is well pleased in his son why aren't you Or are you? We should be. We can be. Here again, in, in condescending grace, the Father makes known what pleases Him so well. And what pleases Him so well is the work that His Son is about to accomplish. Why can I say that? Because when Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain, what did they speak to Jesus about? There was a conversation going on. And we're privileged, though not in Matthew, another of the Gospels tell us that Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about his approaching death. And then Peter begins to speak, gets it all messed up, gets it all wrong. Distracts away from what is really going on and God thunders out of heaven, interrupts him, stops him dead in his tracks and says, nope, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased in him. Peter, be quiet. Hear him. Listen to him. How often we need to do the very same thing. Be still and know that he is God. Very often we think we have to do what Peter does. When God makes himself known, then we have to have some kind of response to it. And then we do just like Peter. We don't know what to say, but we just start talking and words come out. When the right thing to do would just just stop and glory in what God has made known to you. Be still before him, draw near, press in, and he will come into you. Let him reveal himself to you. And this also is the foundation and the ground for joy in the Christian life. If God can be well pleased and eternally blessed and happy, so to speak, in his son, then we can too. That's why the scriptures tell us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say Rejoice! We read it even in Ephesians 5 this morning. We are called to rejoice in and as a reflection of the eternal joy and happiness the Father has in the Son. Why can I say that? Because those of us who are in Christ, Christ has taken us outside the realm, outside the boundaries of circumstantial happiness. And what that means is the circumstances of life no longer dictate to us whether we will wake up happy or grumpy. But as we contemplate the real, true standing of our soul before God, if we are in Christ, then we can, should be rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So far what we've seen with Peter, two glorious events in his life. Given an opportunity. Who do men say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Being privileged to have his mouth closed and to hear the voice from heaven speak and hear the father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Speaking to Peter, but to all of us, hear him. Hear him. And back to that graph of Peter's life of going up and down. He's back up now, but he is about to hit rock bottom. When he denies Christ. If you'll go to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. I don't want to read. Beginning in verse 31 to 34. The Lord said. Simon. Simon. Indeed. Satan has asked. For you. Can you imagine. More fearful fearful words to be spoken to you by Christ than for him to grab your attention Simon Simon Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat and here it harkens back to that whole glimpse into the throne of God where we see Satan approach him and ask for Job Job Let me deal with Job and see if he will still praise you when I'm done with him. God allowed him permission. Go. What was the end of Job? Better than the first. Even though he was tried like few men, when Satan was done, The father came in with compassion, raised him back up, gave him more than he had had, blessed him beyond measure. Simon, Peter, he's going to follow the same pattern. But before we can see the glory, we have to see the doom, right? I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And then we might say, what glorious words that Jesus said to to Peter. I wish he would say that about me. Let me remind you, he has said that about you. He is your great high priest that ever lives to make intercession for you. Even now, as he is the ascended Son of God, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is interceding, pleading on our behalf. The old writers would say that he is standing there, presenting the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side to the Father, pleading, making intercession, saying, See, I've finished this work, I've accomplished this work for them, forgive them. So don't look at this and say, man, I wish Jesus would pray for me like you prayed for Peter, because he has, he will, and he will continue. But there's also in these words a note of future restoration. Jesus says, when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So let's move quickly over to verse 54, same chapter, Luke 22 We're in the the night of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. Peter followed at a distance. Notice that. Every detail in Scripture is important. This is our first hint that something's going wrong with Peter. Why isn't he right there in the front where he's always been, ready to speak, ready to speak up for Jesus? Ask questions before. Peter's always the one that would step up and say, yeah, no, no. I don't know. I don't know what to say, but I'm going to talk anyway. But here he is. He's at the back of the crowd. It's unlike him. He's being sifted as wheat even now. He's in the furnace. The fiery darts of the devil are being directed right at him, and they are hitting and sticking. They kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard, sat down together, Peter sat with them, and a certain servant girl. Notice that. This is no person of high authority. This is not a Roman centurion. This is not a high priest. This is a certain servant girl that had zero authority. Her word would have not carried any weight at all. But when she makes accusation against Peter and says, this man was with him, What does Peter say? Woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You are also with them. Peter said, Man, I am not. And then after an hour had passed, notice the detail again. An hour. Peter had had an hour to think upon his first two failures. It's not like these things happened one second, two seconds, three seconds. And he just got caught in a bad moment. There was some contemplation. An hour had passed. Perhaps he had thought back. Jesus had already told him three times before the rooster crows. Did it ever cross his mind? Strike one, strike two? Well, after the hour passes, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely... Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter, for the third time, strike three, he is out, says, Man, I do not know what you are saying. He had fallen through the sift of Satan. He had been sifted like wheat. But what did Jesus say to him? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So notice this, verse 60, after Peter says for the third time, I do not know what you're saying. I do not know him. Man, I was not with him. Woman, I do not know him. While he was still speaking. Isn't it interesting how much happens to Peter while he's talking? Peter just be quiet what we want to say right the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter I want to talk about this look what do you think was on Jesus' face when he looked some would say that there was contempt and scorn and a frown upon his face I will not go there. I can't go there. It would have been totally out of character for Jesus' look at Peter to be anything other than full of grace and compassion. Satan has sifted him like wheat. He is a man after all. He is just a little bit of breathing dirt like me and you. And he had been under assault of the prince of the power of the air, the fiery dart had stuck in his heart and he had denied Jesus and Jesus rather than looking at him with contempt and scorn looks at him with compassion. It's almost as if you can hear Peter, Jesus say, not recorded, my conjecture, oh Peter, Oh, I love you. I've prayed for you. And your faith is not going to fail. It's not. Peter, I'm on your side. I know you've just said three times loudly, even to cursing, you're not on my side, but I'm on yours and nothing can change that. Deny me a fourth time, if you will. I am not going to leave you or forsake you. I will come and be with you. I will not leave you as an orphan. All of these things must be bound up in the look of Jesus as he turns and looks at Peter. And what does Peter do? He remembered the word of the Lord. How he said to him before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So what does he do? He goes out and he cries, just like we all would, weeps bitterly. And though the look of Jesus did produce withdrawal, Peter went out, it did produce bitter weeping, it also dispensed grace, it also dispensed compassion, and it was the beginning of Peter being. Restored. The writer of Hebrews tells us, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But the entirety of Scripture tells us, though not in these pointed words, that Jesus looks at us with grace and compassion. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. He didn't have to. He could have left Peter to wallow in his own misery. He could have left Peter to weep bitterly until the day that he died, but he turns and he looks. And quickly, as, as we draw to a close, I want you to know the greatness of Peter's restoration. On the first day of the week in Mark chapter 16, when he had been raised from the dead, he makes himself known. There are some that enter the tomb and they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed, they were afraid and he said to them, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Go and tell his disciples. Does anyone know the next two words? The next two words. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why? What had Peter done? Jesus found him in a boat. Peter was back in the boat. He had returned to his former life. We know that from John 21. Peter had gone back to fishing. Peter, in his mind, says, I've blown it. The Lord called me to himself. I walked with him for all these years. I saw all of these wondrous things. I heard the voice on the mountain. I made the great confession. But given opportunity, I failed him not once, not twice, but three times. I just got to go back to my net, my boat. It's what I know. What did the Lord say to him? Nope. I knew what I was doing all along, calling you. I've put you through the furnace. Now you're ready. I've put you through the fire. I've allowed Satan to sift you like wheat. Now you're ready. So quickly, and I'll just mention this, what's the next with Peter? You find him in Acts chapter 2. Fully restored. John 21, by the fire, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter's confident. Affirmation, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter. Jesus asks him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. The third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's almost weeping at this point. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Why did Jesus ask him three times? Most likely because, Jesus, because Peter had denied him three times. Peter, there's grace for your first denial. There's grace for your second. There's grace for your third. There's grace for your fourth, for your twelfth, for your 100 and whatever Do you love me? Then go feed my sheep. And what do we find? Day of Pentecost, given the opportunity. He stands up filled with the spirit. and He thunders out the gospel of Jesus Christ. 3,000 people are brought to faith in Christ. What did God make known about himself to Peter on that day? That he is a God mighty to save. The fishermen came full circle. From boat to boat. But notice, who got him out of the boat both times? At his initial call, and then as he went back to that boat in defeat, who got him out of the boat both times? Jesus. Peter is a pattern of my life and of your life. You will gloriously serve him. And you will mysteriously fail him. But each time when you come crawling back to him on your hands with bloody knees Jesus will get you out of the boat put you back into his service because that's who he is he's full of grace he is full of truth Why would you not come to this Jesus who only wants to show you how much he loves you? Why would you hold him at bay? Why would you say to the most glorious person with the most glorious heart, I don't want you. I don't want you. Don't do it another day. Come to Christ. Come to Christ believing in his name. He will save you. I can't say a lot in life with certainty, but I can say that. If you come to Christ, he will save you. Do it now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words, and we thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We thank you for your grace that is unending. It knows no limit. It's amazing indeed. Show it again. Show your amazing grace again. In the restoration of a fallen believer, those who've gone back to the boat, get them out again. Use them. Those who have never even came out of the boat the first time, God, in grace and mercy, take them by the hand and pull them out. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.